Square River Basin, and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org This is Rosie Starr for Radio Catskill. Welcome to Farm and Country, locally produced radio about rural life in the Catskills and the Delaware River Valley. On today's show, Keith Hubbard's Star Talk reports on the reflective glow of zodiacal light in the western sky. Along the Poets Row, Christine San Jose recites an inspiring montage of seasonal writings on the theme of snow. From the Farm and Country Archives, Laura Silverman serves up minestrone soup to keep us warm. Stephanie Phillips finalizes her conversation with Nico Juarez about beavers for her segment Now You Know. All of that coming up on today's Farm and Country. First, news headlines from NPR. Live from NPR News, I'm Barbara Klein. Blizzard warnings are in effect for tens of millions from mid-Atlantic states into New England. Bruce Conviser is in New Jersey. The New Jersey coastline is under a blizzard warning. Heavy snow and high winds could dump as much as 18 inches of snow as a powerful nor'easter roars up the coast. Power outages, flooding, and beach erosion are all on the menu. Inland, a winter storm warning is in effect, where as much as a foot of snow will blanket the area before the storm pushes up into New England Saturday afternoon. The one saving grace is that the storm is hitting overnight, so no messy rush hour commutes. Still, New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy has declared a state of emergency and is urging drivers to stay off the roads. For NPR News, I'm Bruce Conviser in Greenbrook, New Jersey. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton launched a lawsuit against the Biden administration for restarting the Central American Minors Program. It gives children from Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala a chance to join their parents in the U.S., Texas Public Radio's Carolina Cuellar reports. The U.S. Department of State specifies that only parents who are going through immigration proceedings may petition for their children to enter the country. At a press conference, Paxton said the program enables illegal immigration. None of this has been authorized by Congress, and it just increases the incentive for people to come across our border illegally and violate federal law. But immigration attorney Ruby Powers disagrees. She said many minors enter illegally because it takes so long for their parents' cases to process. And this program offers a legal alternative. He's against putting, making these families whole while they're waiting for the backlogs we have in immigration. This is Paxton's ninth immigration lawsuit against the Biden administration. I'm Carolina Cuellar in McAllen. Ukraine's president is urging calm amid a standoff over Russia's troop buildup along his country's borders. Zelensky says Ukraine has learned to live with constant threat and talk of war is a mistake. Italy's ruling parties are asking President Sergio Mattarella to stay in office for a second term after Parliament couldn't agree on successor candidates. The BBC's Will Leonardo reports. President Mattarella, who's 80, has repeatedly said he wants to step down at the end of his seven-year term. But the Prime Minister has now urged him to remain for the good of the country. Many Italian MPs have been abstaining during repeated rounds of voting as their party leaders reached a stalemate over his successor. 
Others impatient at the wrangling gave Mr Mattarella the most votes on Friday, despite his wishes. Although it's not uncommon for presidential votes to take many rounds, this week has highlighted Italy's polarised politics. Parties appear resigned now to asking a reluctant Mr Mattarella to stay on. But the far-right leader, Giorgio Meloni, tweeted, I don't want to believe it. This is NPR. Support comes from Van Gorder's Furniture, featuring Lodge and Adirondack styles as well as rustic collections. With showrooms at Lake Wallenpapik, downtown Honesdale, and Milford, PA. Van Gorder's Furniture brings the outdoors inside. VanGorders.com. This is Rosie Starr. Welcome back to Farm and Country. Coming up on today's show, Christine San Jose recites a montage of seasonal writings on the theme of snow along the Poets Row. From the Farm and Country archives, Laura Silverman serves up minestrone soup to help keep us warm. Stephanie Phillips finalizes her conversation with Nico Juarez about beavers for her segment Now You Know. On this segment Now You Know, we'll hear about respectful solutions to problems that beavers create. But first, here is Keith Hubbard with Star Talk. Thank you for joining us on Radio Catskill for this week's locally produced Farm and Country. Farm and Country. I'm Keith Hubbard, and this is Star Talk. Throughout February and extending into early May, the opportunity will exist to see a seasonal phenomenon known as zodiacal light. Zodiacal light is a hazy pyramid of light rising from the western horizon after sunset. This light will be visible low in the western sky up to an hour after twilight. Zodiacal light is sunlight that is being reflected off dust grains in the inner solar system. These dust grains spread out along the ecliptic and are thought to be the remnants of the process that created Earth and the other planets in our solar system 4.5 billion years ago. The grains of dust cannot be seen individually, rather their tiny outputs of light combine to create a faint glow. This hazy, faint, pyramid-shaped glow is milkier in appearance than the Milky Way. Dark skies are needed to see the zodiacal light. The waning moon will not be in the sky at nightfall this week. Since zodiacal light is faint, it helps to use a trick known as averted vision. Averted vision is looking slightly off from where you are wanting to look. The most sensitive part of the retina is not in the center, but along the outer edge. Looking off allows the light to hit the most sensitive part of your retina, increasing the chance of seeing the object. Be sure to look to the west just after nightfall this week to try to spot the zodiacal light. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future Star Talk segments, my email address is startalk at farmandcountry.org. For Farm and Country and Star Talk, this has been Keith Hubbard reminding you to keep looking up.
snow along the poet's road today. Snow everywhere. The Snow Blossoms by Clark Ashton Smith. But yesterday eve the winter trees reared leafless, blackly bare, their twigs and branches poignant marked upon the sunset flare. White petaled opens now the dawn, and in its pallid glow revealed each leaf-lorn barren tree stands white with flowers of snow. And from Emily Dickinson, of course, a simple, precise, exquisite picture. The snow. It sifts from leaden sieves, it powders all the wood, it fills with alabaster wall the wrinkles of the road. It makes an even face of mountain and of plain, unbroken forehead from the east unto the east again. It reaches to the fence, it wraps it rail by rail, till it is lost in fleeces. It flings a crystal veil on stump and stack and stem, the summer's empty room, acres of seams where harvests were, recordless, but for them, it ruffles wrists of posts as ankles of a queen, then stills its artisans like ghosts, denying they have been. Two from Richard Le Callien, an Englishman who had the sense to come to the U.S. I suspect one was written near the beginning of the winter and one near the end. See what you think. The first one is called Frost. Summer gone, winter here. Ways are white, skies are clear, and the sun a ruddy boy all day sliding, while at night the stars appear like skaters gliding on a mere. And then comes this one. Winter, some call thee fair, yea, flatter thy cold face, with vain compare of all thy glittering ways and magic snows, with summer and the rose, Thy phantom flowers and fretted traceries of crystal breath, thy frozen and fantastic art of death, with April as she showers the violet on the lees, and bears her bosom in the blossoming trees, and dances on her way to laugh with May. Winter, that hath no bird to sing thee, and no bloom to deck thy brow, to me thou art an empty haunted room, where once the music of the summer stirred, and all the dancers fallen on silence now. And from Norma Ketsis Burnstock from Milford, Winter Dark. I don't mind winter's dark. I gravitate toward home, my couch, my cats, cushions on the floor, stacks of unread books. I stare at the sun as it slides behind trees and white-capped hills. The wood stove sizzles and glows. I know that soon in a matter of days the dark will subside. The sun will return minute by minute. And like the solstice ceremony at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine, when the crowd howls like wolves at the golden disk suspended above, I too will rejoice the lengthening days, warmth, sprouting plants, the return of the bears. And I wonder, would spring be as precious without dark winter days? 
Here's one. Jessica from Massachusetts. Jessica says, toss me a winter with a wind that blows. Toss me a winter with some deer and a doe. Toss me a winter full of ice and snow. Just toss me a winter. <laughs> and here, shared by Highlights for Children, is somebody that nothing's ever going to get down. Joseph says, I would rather be a kid than a king. I would rather be a kid than a puppy. I would rather be a kid than a movie star. Well, let's all be quite glad we're who we are. This has been Christine San Jose along the Poets Row for Farm and Country. WJFF's Farm and Country, this is Laura Silverman of Glutton for Life bringing you What's Cooking? There's an old Spanish saying, Between soup and love, the former is better. I think it really goes to show just how highly we value soup. For its ability to comfort, to nourish, to sustain, to satisfy. Soup is simple, but it's powerful. In the middle of a long, cold winter, soup warms us from the inside out. In Italian, the word minestra predates zuppa by several centuries. It comes from the Latin ministrare, which means to administer, and reflects the fact that the minestra was served from a central pot by the head of the household. For the fortunate, minestra was the prelude to a meal of several courses, while for the working classes, it was often the only one. As such, minestrone became a filling combination of vegetables, legumes, pasta, or rice. There are many variations, but an authentic one always includes some sort of thickening vegetable, like beans, potatoes, pumpkin, or squash. Although minestrone can be made at any time of the year and will change according to what's in season, I think I love it most as a hearty soup of winter vegetables. It's quite brilliant in its versatility, designed to incorporate almost anything you have on hand, including leftover herbs, greens, and pasta. You can even add bits of cooked or cured meat if you like. Sometimes I think of my minestrone as a postmodern alphabet soup because it can be loaded up with vegetables that represent virtually every letter, from artichoke and broccoli to winter squash and yams. The more the merrier, basically. I raid the fridge and pantry for shallots, leeks, onions, garlic, celery, fennel, carrots, mushrooms, butternut squash, green beans, chard, and canned tomatoes. Potatoes, parsnips, wild rice, pastina, and farro would all be good additions. The soup tastes delicious even when made just with water but a stock of vegetables, chicken, or meat will be that much better. One trick to enrich the broth is to toss in a couple of Parmesan rinds. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty lazy when it comes to grating off that last hard layer right before the rind. Anytime I'm done with a slab of Parmesan, I put the remaining bit in a resealable plastic bag and keep it in the freezer. Most recipes say you just cook the rind in the soup for a short time and then discard it but my secret is to leave it in until it becomes really soft and chewy. 
I love eating the whole thing. Try it and let me know what you think. Everything cooks together for half an hour or so until the vegetables are tender but not super mushy. I sometimes add a couple dozen tiny meatballs at this point and let them gently poach in the soup. The thing to remember about minestrone is that it's very free-form. Don't have shallots or leeks on hand? Use only onions. Want to add cauliflower? Be my guest. Beans? Yep. Sure. Pasta? Okay. Bacon? Good idea. But the point is to load it up with a wide variety of vegetables. Serve it with a drizzle of good olive oil, a few croutons, maybe a little grated parmesan, or a swirl of pesto. This is all you need. It will lift your heart and warm your soul. Because that's what the best soups can do. I'm Laura Silverman, and this has been WJFF's What's Cooking, the show about eating life up. TheOutsideInstitute.org is Laura Silverman's webpage that has all her current activity. Good morning. This is Stephanie Phillips with Now You Know for Farm and Country. This morning, I'm planning to find out how to prevent beavers from flooding an area. My expert is Nico Juarez. His company, Beavers Work, is located on Route 52 in Youngsville. So I was raised mostly in the Seattle, Washington region, and I also claim my background really is a little bit in Alaska. I used to live in Alaska and I work in a machine shop there in the fishing industry. It's really what stemmed the interest for working with the material with metal. You know, I, I don't know the connection between the fishing industry and metal. Yeah, there really isn't a connection actually. So it's only just that during the long hours in the fishery, I would play around in the what they call the doghouse. They had a little welder there, and I'd make cute little sculptures and and just kind of play around. And so I, at that time, I realized that I really had an interest in building and and problem solving at that time. And then I moved on to actually the Iron Workers Union in Seattle, Washington, where I journeyed out and had about a four year, I guess, career with the Iron Workers Program, and learned to do high rises and bridges and these things. Oh my, that's a very different background from most people I talk to. Yes. Nico, your website says that your company, which is called Beaver's Work, provides sustainable, non-lethal beaver management solutions. How do you do that? So there's often issues with humans and beaver where we are both very industrious. And we don't like to have a flooded road. We don't like to have a blocked culvert for obvious reasons. So if somebody has a blocked culvert and and otherwise they appreciate the beaver that living in the area, they'll say, hey, I called the DEC and they only gave me a nuisance beaver trapping permit and I prefer to coexist with the beaver. How can you help? And what I'll do is I'll... Since each wetland is unique, it's like a thumbprint, I really have to get my eyes on it and I have to do some research through stream stats to understand 
what the watershed is. And that tells me a lot. So I'll do a site assessment for someone. About 80% of the time, these wetlands and ponds and issues that beavers create can be mitigated through flow devices. And about 80% of the time, the devices that I make reverse. So 20% of the time, unfortunately, I cannot solve them. It's not that I can't solve them. It's that they would outsmart the system. (laughs) So uh, to describe what I would do in my site assessment, I would figure out what the watershed is. And that would tell me the diameter size pipe that I would use. And I usually use 10, 12, and 15 inch diameter pipe culvert pipe actually and then the the cage diameter uh, changes on the diameter of the pipe i need to figure out where's the best place to place this flow device that can outsport the beaver it's a device that it's best described as a straw through a dam regulates the water flow unbeknownst to them so for example if you try to if you breach a dam or if you notch a dam, the beaver instinct, their their drive is is so strong, they understand their water flow so well, by morning that thing will be plugged up. It'll be right back to zero flow. Yeah, I understand that they're kind of drawn to running water. And in fact, my pond, the dam on my pond had a leak, and I called the pond guy to repair the leak, And I said, but let's wait a little bit and see what happens. And sure enough, the beavers took care of it. I didn't have to pay to have it done. That's correct. They probably did it just that night. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it didn't take long. Right. What are the principles behind your devices? I saw on the website there seem to be different approaches to this. Right. There are different approaches and there are different devices for each issue. If it's a blocked culvert, then it needs fencing. And if it's a blocked culvert with a big pond behind it and a dam in front of it, it needs fencing and a flow device. So each wetland or pond that has beaver in it has unique issues to itself and requires some problem solving. So you have some kind of fence that keeps the beaver from getting close to where the water is flowing? Right. So if it's a block culvert, the first thing we would do is unblock the culvert. Then we would, depending on the shape and the flow through this culvert and what the culvert is, say, going under, and the size of the culvert and the shape of the topography around the culvert would require uh, different shapes. So there's keystone what we call keystone fencing, a different shape that would basically, it, it's allowing the beaver. Okay, so sometimes there's a culvert that we are inviting the beavers to dam on top of the fencing, knowing that we've built this thing far enough away from the culvert that when they dam, when we invite them to dam on it, the water flow still goes over and in through the culvert, but they don't have access to block that culvert anymore. Do you, with your devices, change the way the water is flowing? And if you do, do you have to contact the DEC? Great question. <laughs> yes. Yes and yes. The devices I install don't change 
the water flow, it's almost like removing a plug. So if you have a beaver dam and beavers living within it, as we described before, you make one little notch, the next day it's, it's back to being patched. There's a small amount of flow. So what the devices I put in are like a straw through the dam. And that actually regulates the flow continually. So depending on how far I place the culvert piping in the dam, say I placed it two feet, which I wouldn't recommend, but just for sake, I place it two feet notched inside that dam. That's eventually over about a 48 hour period, that ponded area is gonna lower by that much. So in the event of a large rain event, or maybe even a hurricane where we get massive amounts of water, we're starting from two feet lower already. So if there was no device, so say you have a one foot rainstorm, one foot rainstorm or eight inch rainstorm that lands on top of a water body is eight inches that is gonna overflow. Does that make sense? So if you actually place the device when we place the device inside the beaver dam and it regulates much, much lower continually, then if there's eight inches of rain, you're never gonna to top over the dam or it's, it would take much more rain to top over the dam. So that's how that works. You wanna tell us what your website is? It has some nice pictures of beaver on it. Sure, my website is nybeaverswork.com. Nico, I suspect that you really admire beavers, am I right? <laughs> You're correct, very much so. I want to talk a little bit about beaver wetlands are really a vital environment. They're considered really the Earth's kidneys. They filter out a lot of pollution and toxins from the water, and they actually percolate and, and filter into the aquifer for cleaner water. And they also, their ponding creates, really, I think this is more important on the West Coast, where, where they create these fire barriers for these very large wildfires. There's been a couple of studies that uh, biologists and weather people from NOAA have been doing out on the West Coast, where they have uh, these watched beaver habitats, and these blazing fires roll right through and you'll see just on the other side, you know, when the wind is blowing, it's, it of course, is the, it's, it's what's feeding the fire and, and, and making the fire move very quickly. You'll see just on the other side of, of the beaver wetland, the beaver pond, or the beaver habitat that is untouched and unscathed. And so when you have more water on the surface, I mean, more water on the surface is good for a number of reasons. And, in, and one could argue that it's, it helps with climate change as well and filtering out, uh, like I said before, with toxins. So now you know how to discourage beavers from turning your yard into a pond. We've heard about it from Nico Juarez of Beaver Works in Youngsville. If you have ideas for future Now You Know segments, email me at stephanie at wjffradio.org. This has been Stephanie Phillips for Farm and Country.
We hope that you enjoyed our show this week with production by Radio Catskill volunteers Keith Hubbard, Christine San Jose, and Stephanie Phillips. Thank you, Laura Silverman, for your archive segment on Minestrone Soup. Special thanks goes to our guest, Nico Juarez, speaking to Stephanie Phillips on the topic of solutions for beaver problems. This has been your host, Rosie Starr. Thanks for listening to Farm and Country on Radio Catskill, public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Support for Farm and Country comes from Damascus Citizens for Sustainability, a community-supported, science-based nonprofit taking legal actions, providing tools for action, and raising awareness of fracking damage since 2008, proactively protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org this music can reach further than we've ever imagined into worlds that have so little to do with our culture, the culture of Ashkenazi Jews. The music transcends. It takes hold. Someone hears it, falls in love with it. That, that's why I'm so happy to 